Hebrews 20.20, increment 2.1.6, the kind of archpriest we need, part 6. And we'll go to Hebrews 7.26 for that passage in which this is extremely relevant. And Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit that this word may be delivered with demonstration and power and conviction in the Holy Spirit and that it may meet with people who are filled with the Holy Spirit who will understand it and be highly motivated, encouraged, and edified by it to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and to your glory, Father. And I ask this in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the merits of my Savior Christ Jesus. Amen. The kind of preach archpriest we need, part 6, Hebrews 7, 26. And within this message, I hope to present an excursus or an excursion, a side, an apparently side trip, but not. And it's going to lay tracks for us, really, for the next increment of our study as a phalanx, to telestai phalanx. And by next increment, I mean next big increment, and not just one of the increments of Hebrews. By increment, I mean we discover the doctrine of the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's an increment. We discovered the doctrine of the Israel of God. That's an increment. We discovered the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universal saving impact of the cross of Christ. That's an increment. And our next increment, larger increment, is going to be the radical alteration of the human situation, which is already something that can be perceived only by the perceptive capacity of faith, not by science or scientism, not by observation, not by positivism, which is the doctrine that says that the only suitable perceptiveness is that of the senses, and only by faith. Faith is a superior means of perception that can perceive the coming of the kingdom of God and that can perceive and understand and be convinced of the radical alteration of the human situation that occurred in the Christ event. And that is going to determine much of what we learn in the coming days, weeks, and years as a little local flock. Hebrews 7.26, this is the kind of archpriest we need. And we've looked at these words fairly carefully. One who is holy, without malice, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted higher than the heavens. The superiority of Jesus over the priest of the Aaronic order, that's A-A-R-O-N-I-C, order, comes into sharp relief and succinct summary in verses 27 and 28 of Hebrews 7. In verse 27, the archpriest we need has no need, quite simply. He has no need to offer daily, as the archpriests do, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, 
meaning the people of Israel. This he fulfilled once and for all when he offered himself. Now consider what's before us in this loaded paragraph so far. Let's consider, in fact, the first two verses of this three-verse rhapsody. This is the kind of archpriest we need, one who is holy without malice, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who has no need to offer daily the Levitical as the Levitical archpriests do, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, this he fulfilled, I want you to notice that, once and for all, F-hapax, when he offered himself. In 727, we have a conflation of the daily sacrifices with the annual sacrifices of the Day of Atonement, as suggested rightly, I think, by Harold Attridge, who wrote this. It seems likely that our author has somehow conflated the daily sacrifices with that of the Day of Atonement, which is for him the paradigm sacrifice. So to that I would say it is truly likely that our author conflates the daily sacrifices and the annual ones of the Day of Atonement because Jesus is, as we've already demonstrated, the single inclusive archetype of all of these sacrifices as God's lamb. And again, as Thomas Aquinas noted, it was signified that the offering of the true lamb, the offering up of the true lamb, the lifting up, offering up, that is Christ, was the culminating sacrifice of all. Jesus is the single inclusive archetype. Whether we're dealing with the priests and archpriests or with the multitudinous sacrifices for sins prescribed under the law. Whether we're dealing with priests appointed by the law or sacrifices offered according to the law, Jesus is the single inclusive archetype of the priests and the archpriests and of the sacrifices they offer. He is the former as the priest forever. He is the latter as the Lamb of God. Exalted above the heavens is in a climactic position in Hebrews 7.26. This takes us back to the exordium, the first four verses of Hebrews which is a single sentence, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. But this specifically takes us to that part of the exordium where the word of God proclaims that God's son, quote, has made purification for sins and has sat down in the highest heights at the right hand of the eternal majesty, Hebrews 1, 3. Emphasis, then, is on Jesus' supremely exalted position, which followed his action of the purification of sins. In the cross, Jesus engaged in action as well as received in passion. Now, this purification of sins and then followed by exaltation to the highest heavens, this emphasis will be brought forward once again in Hebrews 8, 1-2 where we're headed. 
Hebrews 7.27 adds that this purification of sins was made through the self-offering of the undefiled priest, who is also the undefiled lamb for sacrifice. The archpriests of the Levitical order had need, and that's important to recognize. They had need to offer daily sacrifices for their own sins. Jesus had no such need because, let's just say this, the priest we need has no need. He has no such need as was established in Hebrews Hebrews 4.15. He was without sin. Consequently, God's eternal son became like the siblings whom he was to bring into glory in every respect except for sin. He had no need to offer daily or annual sacrifices for his own sins because he had no sins, committed no sins, knew no sins, had no sin. The last sentence in Hebrews 7.27 can be misleading, therefore, if you just read it in the English. Or even if you read it in the Greek, it can be misleading unless you scrutinize it a little bit. When it says, this he did, this he did, it sounds like he offered a sacrifice for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. And some people have actually interpreted it that way and said that Jesus was a sinner. But we should rather understand this to mean this he fulfilled and transcended. Instead of offering sacrifices for his own sins, he who knew no sin became sin. So that both fulfills and transcends the offerings of the Old Testament priest. So this not only fulfilled the type of the offerings of the archpriests for their own sins, but infinitely transcended the type. The archpriests of the former order offered sacrifices first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people, i.e. Israel. Jesus, the archpriest, became sin, became sin, became sin. He knew no sin, so he didn't make an offering for his own sin. But he became sin for the people of Israel and for the people of all nations over the course of all time. What is very important for us to understand is that by his once and for all sacrifice, self-sacrifice, there has come about a radical and permanent alteration of the human situation from one of enmity against God to reconciliation with God. The primary verse for that, of course, 2 Corinthians 5.19. This comes into view most clearly in a passage of Scripture, in fact, that could well be classed with 1 Corinthians 15.22-28 as a micro-apocalypse, to use Bulgakov's language. That passage in question being 2 Corinthians 5. 14 through 21. We might have to reserve a special message for that someday in the not too distant future. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21 can be considered in the light, one, of Jesus' representation of all of humanity as great archpriest, two, 
of his becoming sin rather than offering a sacrifice for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. And three, the radical alteration of the human situation brought about by his once and for all self-sacrifice for the sins of the world. This passage, speaking of 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21, merits our careful consideration and we aren't able to give it that due consideration at this particular time because of what we're dealing with. But I'm going to mark that down in my brain right now and hopefully deal with it in the future. The Levitical archpriests had to offer sacrifices, first of all, for their own sins. Jesus, who knew no sin and who was and is holy and without the evil of sin, undefiled and separated from sinners, became sin for us, and after having purified the world of its sins, became exalted above the heavens, or above all heavenly beings. The archpriests of the order of Aaron offered sacrifices for the sins of the people, and in the context, the people means the people of Israel. Jesus offered one sacrifice for the sins not only of Israel, but for the whole world in all of its times. This is the chronological and extensional universality of the efficacy and the saving impact of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. John the Elder, who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, or Alpha, Beta, and Gamma John, the epistles, John the Elder could be speaking for the people of Israel or he could be speaking for Christians when he wrote that, quote, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. The sins of the whole world have been purified, expiated, put away, and the wrath of God against sin propitiated. This is the radical and permanent alteration of the human situation, something that can only be understood and even perceived by faith, faith, faith. It's no wonder that Paul said, may it never be that I should glory in anything except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He further recognized that by the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, he had been crucified to the world and the world to him, Galatians 6.14. It may even be better said, in fact, in another sense, Paul had been crucified with the world, with the world and the world with Paul. In the cross, the evilly affected world was crucified, as was Paul's, Paul's old irredeemable self and ours. Here's a principle for you. Because of the radical nature, in fact, we'll call it a thesis. Because of the radical nature of God's love, the cross of Christ was the mercy-killing, of the irredeemable and incurably sick old man, the man of sin. 
this can be part of the same thesis. The cross of Christ was the euthanasia of the old man. The recognition of this allows us to understand that putting off the old man in Ephesians 4.22 and Colossians 3.9 is putting off from ourselves a dead man. It's the end of our being defiled by a contact with a corpse. I'll let that sink in for a second. The offerings for sin offered by the priests of the Levitical order were actually solely, S-O-L-E-L-Y, for sins committed in ignorance. The once and for all self-offering of Jesus was, on the contrary, or in a superior way, for the putting away of sin itself and the world of sin. His purification of sins was not only for a category of sins, but for sins of all categories. Here in Hebrews 7.27, we have the first mention of the descriptor once and for all for the self-offering of Jesus Christ for sins. And that will become thematic throughout Hebrews 10.18. F. Hapax. That's a key word in Hebrews, once and for all. I'll explain a little bit what that means, both in the chronological and extensional universal sense, maybe even in this message. Here's our excursus, though. This almost gives definition to, really, the kind of the fourth place or the fourth huge increment or category of insight that we have experienced over the course of 45 years of teaching in, in this place, or 43, I guess, I don't know how many, but 40 plus. Excursus. Beyond just understanding the finished work of Christ in its salvific sense, beyond understanding of the Israel of God, beyond understanding of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universal impact of his cross, is this, excursus. And here it is. Demanded with the alteration of the human situation is a change of perception to become compatible with that alteration in Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, the next huge fourth of four increments of our study as we've progressed along the King's Highway is the faith perception of a radical alteration of the entire human and creational situation. This ultimately results in the love of Christ controlling us and being our prime motivation. And so I want to say that right off the bat, but I want to continue this. This is an excursus or an excursion. It's kind of like a digression, but it's not a digression because it's determining the route and the path we're going to take. 
demanded with the alteration of the human situation is a change of perception to become compatible with that alteration in Jesus Christ and him crucified. Repentance entails not only a renunciation of the pride of self-justification, but also the dethroning of the idols of rationalism, scientism, and positivism. You can look that up in the dictionary if you want. Positivism is a doctrine which is akin to empiricism. That means it's only real if I can see it. It's only real if I can sense it. Let me say it again then. Repentance entails not only a renunciation of the pride of self-justification, but also the dethroning of the idols of rationalism, scientism, and positivism, which is akin to empiricism. Of the pride of self-justification, because we were all justified when Jesus, our representative, was justified as a result of his faithful obedience and God the Father's favorable verdict on his faithful obedience to the death of the cross where Jesus was judged in our behalf and where sin was put away. Of the dethroning of scientism, rationalism, and positivism with their restrictive modes of perception because these modes of perception are incapable of appropriating the reality of the alteration of the human situation and indeed the situation of the universe. These modes of perception have their place, but not in the perception of the most important capital R reality, the capital R reality of the kingdom of God as personified and embodied in Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. Faith perceives the radical universal alteration of the human situation, which sight, in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, which is a conflation of all other human modes of perception, sight cannot appropriate. So we walk by faith, not by sight. I'll say that again then. Faith perceives the radical universal alteration of the human situation, which sight cannot appropriate. Science cannot observe, even as it cannot observe the onset of the kingdom of God, which is even now among us and within us, Luke 17, 20 to 21, as the alteration of the human situation in Jesus Christ and him having been crucified, resurrected, exalted, and seated at God's right hand. In other words, that is the kingdom of God in the present form. It is the alteration, the radical alteration, and the permanent alteration of the human situation in Jesus Christ and him having been crucified, buried, resurrected, exalted, seated at God's right hand above all heavenly beings. And it is something rationalism cannot accept as it judged the word of the cross to be so much nonsense. Faith is also the assurance of the coming past, P-A-S-S. 
PAS, acronym, permanent alteration of the somatic status, the bodily status of humanity, and really the bodily status of the present universe. Faith is also the assurance of the coming PAS, the radical observable change of the universe and the human condition. It will be observed when that happens also, and seen and manifested for the perception of all humankind. Well, I'll say it again one more time, still in the excursus. Faith is also the assurance of the coming pass, the radical observable change of the universe and the human condition via the extremely general resurrection. On top of this, faith, again, is the settled conviction that this alteration of the human condition, or the human situation rather, I'll say that again, faith also is the settled conviction that this alteration of the human situation has in fact taken place in tetelestai. Faith is that, along with being the confident assurance that the PASS, capital P-A-S-S, and the new creation of all things will come to pass, and that it is, it is already done, Revelation 21.6, in the resurrected Jesus, and therefore guaranteed in the resurrected great archpriest for all humanity. The hoped for things in, of which faith has confident assurance, Hebrews 11.1, 1, includes perhaps prominently this universal alteration of the human and creational condition. I'll say that again, that the hoped for things of which faith has confident assurance includes most prominently the universal alteration for the infinite better of the human and creational condition, something which did not yet happen for the faith heroes that are cataloged in Hebrews 11. This is anticipating Hebrews 11, incidentally, because God had a plan that they would not be perfected without us, Hebrews 11:40. We share with them the faith that is the assurance of things hoped for and the inner conviction and indeed the inner perception or perceptiveness of unseen things. So we're, we share that with those so-called faith heroes. Before the cross, they had faith in hoped-for things. For them, they had to hope both for the radical alteration of the human situation at the cross and the radical alteration of the human condition at the parousia, the second appearance of Jesus Christ. We, our faith, lays hold of and perceives the already radical alteration of the human situation in Jesus Christ and him crucified and with them, we still expect the radical change of the human condition and the condition of all creation. So they, without us, will not be completed. So that's a inclusio. That's in Nuce, Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, 1, faith. Hebrews 11, 40, they, not without us. So this is the meaning of faith, still in the excursus here. We share with them the faith that is the assurance of things hoped for and the inner conviction and indeed the inner perception or perceptiveness of unseen things. 
This is the meaning of faith in Hebrews. The meaning of faith in Hebrews. So very important. What a valuable commodity is faith. What an inestimably precious gift. What a treasured possession. No wonder James wrote, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? To be rich in faith. What a thing. James 2.5. So we here's a thesis then. Another thesis that will close the excursus. Then we're back to our exposition. We need a conversion. A change of perceptiveness and perception. Which is compatible with. And appropriates. The change of the human situation. That has occurred in Jesus Christ. And him crucified. The time in between the alteration of the human. Now I'm going back into our exposition here. The time in between the alteration of the human and creational situation. And the change of their condition is anagona. We've seen that many times. It's anagona. An arena of contention. Agona. It's an arena of contention and struggle. The agona requires perseverance and fortitude. There's no safe space that can remove you from the agona. Our great archpriest infuses us with his own perseverance. So our true safe space is in Christ Jesus. Our great archpriest infuses us with his own perseverance through the Holy Spirit and the word of God. We have the archpriest we need. We have him already, the archpriest we need. But we still need and we still stand in need of this perseverance for the agona. Hebrews 10.36. In the present tribulation. Ellipsis, not a future one, but the present tribulation. We stand also in the kingdom of God with the perseverance of Jesus in Revelation 1.9. Read the whole verse. We are constantly needy because we are from moment to moment in need of him. But we do have him. And we have him always. He is always near. Always here. Even though his being with us may not be as apparent as it will be when we reach the very end and frontier of our lives on earth. When he meets us in that moment when we will not see death, but we will see our Redeemer. He who has destroyed death and the one who had, he also destroyed the one who had power over death. For a very limited time. Thesis. This all occurred in that which we call the Christ event. The passion of Jesus Christ. Which was an act or an action of God. For as Jesus endured the cross. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. 
In the cross, Jesus also acted. As priest, he engaged in the action of offering himself. And as the lamb, he engaged in the passive passion of being offered. The archpriest we need has no need. Hebrews 7.27 then reads like this. Who has no need to offer daily as the archpriests do, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. This he fulfilled once for all for the archpriests and the people and for all people when he offered himself that is, as the universal sin offering. It can be misleading again. I want to say this again because there's a catch here. There's a glitch that we want to overcome. It can be misreading to read this verse or to read in it that in fulfilling the task of archpriest, Jesus also offered a sacrifice, quote, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Instead, we should understand that Jesus both fulfilled and transcended the actions of the Old Testament archpriest, not by making an offering for his own sins, but as one who knew no sin, he willed to become sin for us so that we would become the righteousness of God in him. And in him, all caps, we certainly are, and by we, I mean all of humanity in all of its times. Moreover, Jesus fulfilled and transcended, transcended the actions of the archpriests of the Aaronic order by making one offering for the sins not only of the people of Israel, but for the people of the whole world in all of its times and historical eras. On top of this, Jesus, the archpriest and the representative of all people, was also the offering and sacrifice offered. And as such, in his passion, he received the judgment of God on all of sinful humanity. In his sacrificial death, the death of all sinful humanity took place. And shocking, most shocking of all, especially to readers of Second Thessalonians, in becoming sin, Jesus effectively became the man of sin who was annihilated in the whole burnt offering of the Lamb of God. That's a shocker. I just wanted to drop that in there. That's a daisy cutter. We'll be letting that explode in future messages. Jesus, the archpriest, and the representative of all people, was also the offering and the sacrifice, and as such, in his passion, he received the judgment of God on all of sinful humanity. In his sacrificial death, the death of all sinful humanity took place. The priest is the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the cosmos, and in so doing, radically altered the situation, not only of all human beings, 
but of the cosmos itself, that is, the universe in all its proportional created being and times. Jesus is the kind of archpriest we all need because now all of humanity's existence is determined by him. It is determined salvifically by him, our sir, single, inclusive, representative, whose name means Jesus because he takes away his, the sins of his people. Now, therefore, anthropology exists within Christology. All human beings, not just saints, belong to Jesus Christ and have a place in him, a place to live and move and have our being. As Jesus is away, air quotes, encircling that word away, making a place for us in the heavens, he is also here. And in him we have a place, as he has a place to live and move and have his being in us, all because he took our place by becoming sin for us, that we would become the righteousness of God in him. What am I doing? Preaching the gospel. Jesus doesn't leave us alone to bear alone the sufferings we brought upon ourselves even by sinful and otherwise unwise decisions and actions. Yes, there's reaping that goes with some of those unwise decisions and misery, but we don't even suffer that misery brought on to ourselves by ourselves alone. There is that suffering in this world. But we do not bear it alone, for he who bore our sins bears the consequences of them then and now. In Hebrews 7.27, rather, we have the first mention in Hebrews of Ephapax accent here. And that's also found in Hebrews 9.12 and 10.10. And also, if you jump over in Romans, it's found in Romans 6.10 in a slightly different context. And this can be compared also with the Greek word mian, M-A-M-I-A-N, mian, which also means once or one and one only, mian. And that's found in Hebrews 10.12. This man, after he had made one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down. So epapax, a key word here in 7.27, is also used in 9.12 and 10.10, also in Romans 6.10. And it may be compared with mian in 10.12 and also the word without the prefix hapax. Hard breathing accent, A-P-A-X. So it would be English transliteration, hapax. 
So there's f hap x and hap x. These are the words that I think I majored on in my first few years here in the Pittsburgh area, in the Indiana area, in the Elwood City area, in the Ford City area, in the Aliquippa area, and other areas, that, including Greensburg and Monroeville, Penn Hills, and Ohio, and a lot of other places where we preached and proclaimed, sometimes 11 times a week, including radio. So... Once and for all, that's the word. And so, again, Hebrews 7.27, right here, is where that is first offered. Epapax has to do primarily with the chronological finality of the cross of Christ. By the way, hapax is used in 926 of Hebrews, 927, and 928. We'll get into all these down the road. F hapax has to do primarily with the chronological finality of the cross of Christ. Therefore, its meaning is once and for all time. But the implication is that this sacrifice is efficacious for all time and therefore speaks to its chronological universality, a term we looked at before in recent increments. We have to go elsewhere to consider the extensional universality of that word. Romans 8.32 is a splendid example. Jesus, God's son, was not spared but freely handed over for us all. There's extensional universality. 2 Corinthians 5.14 is another verse. For there we have the judgment that Paul the Apostle came to. If one died for all, then all died. In Psalm 143.2, Septuagint 142.2, we learn that no flesh, and that means, and it's in some translations, that means no living human being will ever be justified in God's sight. That's pretty rough. Consequently, for God to justify all humanity, all living human beings had to die because no living human being can be justified in God's sight. So what happened is when Christ died for all, all died. And all were justified. For God to justify all humanity, all living human beings had to die And they did die in Jesus Christ. Dying with him, they were justified with him, raised with him, and exalted with him in Ephesians 2.6. The point I'm making is that Jesus' once and for all self-sacrifice can and should be considered to mean once and for all time and for all people. This meaning is not arrived at by a consideration of f hapax or of hapax alone, but by a conflation of verses, a combination of verses, a blending of verses like Hebrews 7.27, Hebrews 9.12, and 10.10, 9.26, 9.28, with verses like Romans 8.32 and 2 Corinthians 5.14. In the conflation of these verses, we have the conflated meaning 
quote, once and for all time and for all humanity, thus capturing both the chronological and extensional universality of the once and for all saving and sanctifying self-sacrifice of the great archpriest who is also the Lamb of God. I'm saying a lot in this increment, so I do refer you to the written form of it if you want to study it and if you want to have the most important information in the world right now that is in the world right now. Now, this also, all I'm talking about here, falls under the abbreviated acronym UICC, the Universal Impact of the Cross of Christ. Therefore, Karl Barth's phrase, once and for all of us, is well taken, as is his conclusion, in which he wrote this, as it concerns all men, and when he said all men, he was living in that era when he meant all men and women, but didn't say it. And today, you almost can't say that without being crucified upside down with your eyes poked out in social media. So when he said all men, he meant all human beings. So as it concerns all men, it will be revealed to all men what Karl Barth meant was, as it was, as it concerns all human beings, it will be revealed to all human beings of both genders. And so, Barth's phrase, once and for all of us, is well taken. Epapax, Fapax, is also used notably, again, as I said, in Romans 6.10, where the emphasis falls again on Christ's once and for all time death which in turn highlights his resurrection from the dead, whereby he never dies ever again. Romans 6.10 therefore states negatively what Hebrews 7.16 and 7.25 say positively, that he lives forever in the power of an indestructible life. And that's, you may compare that with 2 Corinthians 13.4. Hebrews 7. Now I must ask my co-laborer in the Lord, Emery, how much time have we gone through already? Okay, thank you. Hebrews 7.28. We're going to make some progress in this and some forward motion because, well, when we get together, we want to be on a certain theme. 7.28. The law appoints men as priests who have inherent Sinful weakness, that means. I include that in brackets. The law appoints men as priests who have inherent weakness. It means sinful weakness. But the word of the oath appoints a son, meaning a sinless son, Hebrews 1, 1, and 2. That refers back to the exordium. Who has been perfected in his vocation as archpriest, that means forever. So here's 728 with a slight I just did the exposition of it, or the exegesis. The law appoints men as priests who have inherent sinful weakness. But the word of the oath appoints a son, going all the way back to Hebrews 1-2, bringing an inclusio here, 
from 1.1 1, 1 to 7.28, who has been perfected. That means perfected in his vocation as archpriest forever. Now, with the use of son or a son, huios, Hebrews 7.26 to 28, that rhapsody there, is linked with the exordium, the first four verses of this sermon, Hebrews 1, 1-4. This way you're getting an idea of the structure, the arrangement, and the arc of coherence in the epistle or the discourse, the sermon. As such, there is an inclusio here. Hebrews 8, 1 then begins a freshly generated exposition that goes all the way through 10.18. 10.19 begins a very powerful and even central exhortation, pastoral exhortation. But for now, the law appoints men who are weak. The word of the oath of God appointed a son, and that means the unique son, of course, who, though crucified in weakness lives now and forever in the power of God, the power of an endless life. It's not that our archpriest has not known weakness. Oh, no, can't say that. He has known it in a way that no other man or woman has ever known weakness. For the scripture says he was crucified in weakness, Again, I can't lay emphasis enough on 2 Corinthians 13.4 for more than one reason. Now, this weakness in which he was crucified is not just a lack of physical strength or of intellectual power. It is the weakness of God-forsakenness, the unimaginable weakness of God-forsakenness, the abject weakness of the nothingness of sin which he became. In that weakness, the Messiah said, I am a worm and no man. I am a worm and not a man. Psalm 22.6, Septuagint 21.7. Now in Job 25.6, Bildad, the ersatz friend, one of the ersatz friends of Job, really a false friend, conflated the terms man and maggot and son of man with worm. Little did Bildad in Job 25.6 know or anticipate the Son of Man's words from the cross while he was being crucified in weakness. I am a worm, not a man. Jesus experienced utter impotence, the exact opposite of the power of God. In fact, he was the powerless victim of the all-powerful judgment of God on sin. This is the weakness in which Jesus, the Son of God, was crucified. And yet now he lives by the power of God. Also in 2 Corinthians 13.4. And in this power of an indestructible life, he intercedes for us, advocates for us, acts as our mediator and the guarantor that we will live as he does in immortality and incorruption in bodies like his resurrection body, a spiritual body, and yet a body of flesh and bone, a body of glory 
and yet a human body. Divinely animated, a human body, divinely animated. He intercedes, advocates, and let's call this an, also a thesis in our, along our King's Highway. He intercedes, advocates, mediates in order to save us to the uttermost, yes, but also to save us through this time in between the radical and permanent change of the human situation and the impending permanent and radical alteration of the human condition and even the human somatic status. In this meantime, we are weak in him. Also, 2 Corinthians 13, verses 2 to 4. We are weak in him. We are weak in Christ. But in our weakness, we are strong. Because in weakness, his power kicks in for us. His grace is enough for us in this meantime, in this arena of struggle and contention, tribulation and pressure. In our weakness, we are still in him and he in us. As Paul, Jesus' chief emissary, said, we are weak in him. Not just weak, but weak in him for this time in between. We are in Christ. And this is the main thing, the significant thing, the lasting thing, the everlasting reality. We will always be in him. We will not always be weak and in weakness. And even now, when we are weak, we are paradoxically strong because in our very weakness, Christ's power resides in us. The same power by which he now lives in glory. 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10 tells this story. He who lives by the power of God in glory lives in us, and his power is in us, even as we are weak in him. Ephesians 3.20, Colossians 1.29. For this reason, though our outer man is wearing out, our inner man is being renewed day by day. 2 Corinthians 4.16. So if I may get a little practical, we really have nothing to complain about. All our complaints arise from a limited horizon and a restricted vision. We get mad, we say, at God because we don't yet know him, at least not fully. We complain about our lot in life because we don't really know the meaning of life and we haven't truly appropriated the word of the cross. And so we perish not because of our circumstances, we perish in the measure that we remain ignorant of the word of the cross. And we experience salvation, on the other hand, in the measure that we view the word of the cross as the power of our salvation. We complain about other people in our lives because the love of Christ doesn't yet control us. And we don't take into account that when one died for all, all died 
including those whom we complain about or are envious of or those whom we look upon with contemptuous condescension or with lust or with idolatrous veneration. We look at others with hatred and bitterness or with bitter jealousy because of the same ignorance and we unwisely measure ourselves by others and compare ourselves with others. 2 Corinthians 10, 12 to 13, because of the same restricted vision and the same limited horizon. We do so because we are truly small people, small-souled people, who have yet to become small in our own eyes through the basic virtue of humility. Paul refused to see any person after the flesh 2 Corinthians 5.16, because he knew that all died when Christ died for us and as us all. He knew that all people are in Christ and a new creation already because of the radical alteration of the human situation that happened at the cross and in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. If any person is in Christ... And because of the radical alteration of the human situation, every person is in Christ. Then they are also already part of the new creation of all things. Those who have come to judge this to be the reality that is in Jesus are primarily motivated by his love, his love for all people. They have undergone a threefold conversion, the most important of which is the so-called religious conversion or spiritual conversion that happens when the love of God is poured out throughout our whole heart by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Priests and archpriests of the Aaronic order or the Levitical order were appointed by the law on the basis of their hereditary descent, appointments which were temporary because of the weakness of the human condition and the inevitability of the end of their priesthood with the end of their life on earth. But Jesus was appointed a priest forever by an unchanging and immutable oath of God and he has been perfected or completed forever in this vocation by having offered one offering himself for all forever now we have a catchword perfected in this verse the catchword perfected teleao in this verse, which is a, if not the, key, key conceptual word in Hebrews. For it indicates the perfection or completion of Christ and his offering and the completion and perfection of the messianic community, which will only ultimately be perfected 
when it is populated by all mankind. Jesus has been perfected in his vocation as archpriest, and he is therefore and thereby just the kind of archpriest we need, especially during this time in between. So I'm going to close with a final thesis for, t for increment 216. We need a conversion, a change of perceptiveness and perception, which is compatible with the change of the human situation that has occurred in Jesus Christ and him crucified. This conversion occurs when the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. In fact, it will be a threefold conversion, intellectual, moral, and spiritual. If we add, and I intend to, R.M. Doran's psychic conversion, it will in fact be a fourfold conversion. Father, bring this about in all of us, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.